What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. We are here for a second year in a row at the Health 2.0 conference, and I have the good pleasure of sitting down with someone that I think you're going to find fascinating. Um, We already compared some of our uh, notes. Her name is Jane Saracen Khan, and she is a health economist. Um, In addition to that, that this is at Think Health. She's also an author. We'll talk about her book, um, which is, I think, going to be a lot of fun as well, a blogger at Health Populi. And uh, I can already tell a good all-around person. So welcome, Jane. Happy to be here, Aaron. Well, I'm happy to have you here. And uh, it's always fun when you feel an energy with the person you're going to interview. Let's start by talking a little bit about, I think people know what health is. People know what economists are. I don't know as though I'd ever heard of a health economist. So what does that mean and what do you do? Like, what does a day in the life look like for you? Sure. Health economics... Uh, you sort of study in graduate school, and you, the way I did my degree at University of Michigan, go blue, uh, was Tom a common, Brady's college. You got you may it. not like that, but it's all right. It's uh, Wolver- Wolverines uh, are one. Um, we study public health issues, everything from epidemiology and statistics through public health and even healthcare administration, how do hospitals work and hospital accounting and things like that. But when you go into health economics, you marry that sort of public health ethos to the study of economics. And uh, economics at its heart is the study of scarcity. How do you take resources and make them extend as far as possible? When you think about healthcare today, particularly in the US, where we're spending nearly uh, 20% of the national economy on care and have some of the worst health outcomes, it's a prime time for those of us in health economics to try to figure out what is wrong with this picture. So in health economics, we really wrestle with how uh, uh, resources come in to healthcare through taxation, through um, labor, you know, how do we spend doctors' times, nurses' times, um, other professionals, clinical professionals, and then how then does that relate to what comes out of the system? Outcomes, um, mortality, how, uh, who's dying, who's living, and uh, ultimately we want to drive to the quadruple aim, right? Uh, drive outcomes, enchant the experience, lower per capita cost, per person cost, and finally that fourth pillar that gets often overlooked, how do we prevent clinician burnout? Because if we have a burnt out doctor and nurse, we're not going to have good outcomes. So we moved from the triple aim to the quadruple aim. That's, those are the things that keep health economists up at night. Well, it makes me feel that much better knowing that people like you are thinking about these things, and I mean that genuinely. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you know you've been uh, you've you've won quite a few accolades or been uh, noted a number of times. I'll just name a few, and then I'd like to jump into how you went down this path in the first place. So, one of the top hundred most influential economists from Richtopia um, that was in March of uh, 2017, uh, one of the hit 100, uh, and then one of the 40 healthcare transformers by MMNM. I was just talking to Steve Madden earlier oh, today. Great. Um, and this is, you know, these are three of probably 20 that I've got listed on my sheet. So you've clearly made an impression in the world. I love the story, though, that um, I don't know where Daryl, who is our, our um, producer here today, helped us find. But you tell the story of getting into healthcare, starting with your mom. Um, it didn't necessarily start in the best way. And this is with the diagnosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at this time, and I love that you made that sort of, um, 
don't know what the right word is, but the uh, the observation that the internet didn't exist. You couldn't Google Correct. things, right? You had to do things the old-fashioned way, the Dewey Decimal System. Let's talk a little bit about that story and how that led you into the world of healthcare. Yeah, I had, uh, I'm blessed with have, having two of the best parents that ever lived. And um, I have uh, them to thank really for any success I have in life is because of abundant love and brilliant role models. So I had two parents who were really engaged patients before the internet and then my dad lived till he was uh, 86 after the internet and mom first uh, was diagnosed when I was very young and she was too young with um, an unspecific kind of leukemia at the time. It was 1971. In those days we didn't have the kind of chemo we have now or or more precise medicine her in her case it was a lot of blood transfusions it was really medieval and very unspecific radiation and that was it so she really took a lot into her hands she was quite a can-do person and had a huge social network remember this is offline social network so faith-based community-based she worked in a school district part of a union an education union so people in the union Union gave blood to the Red Cross in her name. I mean, this was an amazing social network. Um, and in, in, instead of having a health 2.0 world where she could go online to Google, she had a great friend who was a librarian at Wayne State University in Detroit. I grew up outside of Detroit. Richard, who um, went to Index Medicus, the, the hard textbook, to research uh, for her case what was the state of the art for her microfiched, copied them. Remember those slimy pages? I do. I uh, actually, I went to grad school back in the early 90s, and so, a lot of the research I did was reliant even, on that even microfiche. Even today, I mean, to research my book, which we'll talk about later, in Italy, I used a microfiche in an old library. But long story short, my mother uh, created a kind of 2.0 world uh, when it was just 1.0 uh, in real time. And um, I think she extended her life a lot by the social network, the love in her life, the social determinants of health that we talk about, nutrition through the, reading the books of Adele Davis, Let's Eat Right to Get Fit and to Get Well. Adele was a very influential nutritionist in the 70s. So my mother outlived a six to 12 month prognosis by eight years. The last two years were not fun, but she did really well for six, worked still, was very engaged in life, traveled with my dad, and really loved living. So I learned a lot about patient engagement and how you don't necessarily need the internet. Uh, and that really educated me at the end of life, looking at the last medical bill that came out of Sinai Hospital in Detroit, the explanation of benefits, where my dad was only responsible for a couple hundred bucks, which was the TV and the phone. No health care costs. She had Blue Cross Blue Shield in Michigan on a union plan from that teacher's union, and everything was covered. And I said to myself as a young economist undergrad at the time, who's paying this bill? And that's when I started to figure out the role of health insurance and how, holy cow, uh, actuaries are brilliant people and I need to learn more. And then I retooled and went back to Michigan to do my um, graduate degree in health economics. Well, thank you for sharing that story and kudos for you for having that inspire you and, and digging in and saying, I really do want to know more because I think a lot of people do think it's magic or it just happens behind the scenes. And probably if we didn't take it as for granted as we did, then, you know, a lot better outcomes would happen. I do want to talk a little bit about your book and I, I love the title. So I'm looking at it here and hopefully we'll post a picture along with the, um, the podcast, but it's called Health Consuming. 
from health consumer to health citizen. And I think this, I, I like what you're indicating and, and I'll be interested to learn more, but you're showing that transition of really, it sounds like from being almost an inactive or like a passive uh, person in the process to this really active citizen. If you're a citizen, you're actively engaged. So tell us a little bit about the book and, and maybe the thesis of it and may, maybe whether I'm right or wrong in terms of how I'm interpreting your title here. You're really close. It's if you read the cliff notes before, before we talk, but there aren't any cliff notes for this. Um, so my brand in, uh, as a blogger at, Think, at um, Health Populi is really to focus on the convergence of health and healthcare, people, consumers, and technology and a lot of health policy because of course I have to study that um, for client work. So we think about the consumer, the patient now, morphing into the payer uh, in this world of high deductible health plans and increasingly this what we call the financial risk shift from the original payers, we used to talk about payers, we talked about health insurance companies, health plans, employers and unions, and the government sponsoring Medicare, Medicaid, VA, TRICARE, Champus, et cetera. The payer now, the next big payer is the consumer who's gotta pay the first dollar cost in a deductible or at the point of purchase for a prescription drug. Um, you know, plenty of money if it's a specialty drug, maybe 50% of the retail. Well, if you were looking at a hep C drug a couple of years ago, it was 98 grand, you're looking at $49,000. And if the median American savings is between 400 and $1,000 in the bank today. Leaves a little bit of a gap. There's quite a, quite a gap. So we think about this concept of the patient is the payer in the book, moving to health consumers. And if you are a payer consumer, what kind of service might you expect if you're a consumer? The kind of workflow, life flows we get from, say, oh, I don't know, Amazon. So the next chapter in the book, after a couple talking about the economics, is how Amazon has primed health consumers. And we talk about what is the new expectation in, in a retail sense for service, streamlined, streamlining, um, fast ship, right? And how long does it take to schedule an appointment with a specialist? Well, it ain't two days where I live in Philadelphia, even with six medical schools and lots of doctors. You still have to wait. So we think about what has Amazon done to rewire the person as a consumer and how does that translate into healthcare? The chapter after that, we talk about retail health. So we talk about obviously the new news that on Friday, so we're, it's uh, September 16th now, so on the 13th, Walmart opened its first freestanding health center. Now you can go online also to walmarthealth.com in some towns and states and schedule a first uh, mental health visit intake, 60 minutes for $60 and 45 minutes for the follow-up for $45. That is not doable in the regular scheme of psychology, psychology, marital therapy, name your favorite uh, psychological encounter. So we see the likes of Walmart, CVS, Aetna, um, Walgreens, um, moving into this new retail health area. And what does that mean? And I take it well beyond the retail health clinic all the way through to medical cannabis storefronts to the faith-based institution, to the black barbershop in urban areas, which is a place you can get your blood pressure read and learn about your type 2 diabetes management in many barbershops now. So we think about all of these touch points, these new front doors to healthcare. And finally, how can digital health 
leverage uh, various technologies to get care anywhere, where we live, work, play, pray, shop, learn. And so I take the Robert Wood Johnson phrase, the culture of health, live, work, play, and pray, and I've added learn and shop, because increasingly even real estate malls are devoting space to healthcare. I know in suburban Philly this is happening, suburban Boston, because shopping malls are now having empty space, so they're getting repurposed for health. So really, we have the opportunity to deliver care, and ultimately then the question of health citizenship is will we own or rent our health? And the story of, of my personal story of that is I became an Italian citizen a couple years ago, thereby an EU citizen. And having worked in Europe for many years, I know that people who live in Europe are called health citizens because they all have access to universal health care. And they're all covered now by the GDPR, the privacy regulation. In the US, we have poor little HIPAA, Gina, COPA for children, but a patchwork quilt of privacy. And now that health data aren't just health care claims data, they're the data coming out of our wearable technology. I'm touching my Fitbit Versa watch right now. I got other things on I could touch under my clothing. But I'm generating a lot of data, and my retail receipts are not covered by HIPAA. But isn't that interesting? We could scrape them together and get a health profile for me. So um, I talk about the importance of universal access to all people in the US a more comprehensive privacy law on the rights side. And as citizens, we also should have responsibilities, like to vote in every election, especially for candidates who will bundle health into public policy, like food and agriculture, labor for fair wages, because, gee, having a fair wage uh, does bolster your health, come to think of it, uh, transportation, um, and of course climate change, which is relevant to health. So we talk about rights and responsibilities at the end of the book, a lot informed by what I've learned by being an EU health citizen. Well, it's amazing, and I, I'm going to strongly recommend that everyone uh, pick up a copy, and I'm looking forward to picking up a copy because it sounds like a lot of the journey that we've taken uh, we've had the luxury of interviewing people like Marcus Osborne from Walmart a uh, year ago, um, of having some of the folks from, you know, we have someone from CVS Aetna later today. And so really looking at how we're, health is being brought closer to the consumer or the citizen and all of those things that you talk about. And I like that idea of like the renting versus the owning. That's, a, that's an interesting concept. So bringing this all full circle, today we are at the Health 2.0 uh, conference, and you are giving a couple of talks. So I'd love to get a little bit of a preview for what those are, and maybe a little bit of a, I think you've given us a bit of a vision into the future of healthcare. But you have two that you're doing. Um, the first is called uh, the Fireside Chat Executive Views, and so it's three health tech executives sitting down for intermittent. Uh, intimate interviews. And the next is the new wave of pa patient consumers. So um, give us a little cheat sheet on what those are going to look like. Sure. So regarding the fireside chat, I've these are um, this is the 13th anniversary of Health 2.0. And I've done mostly every year a fireside chat with one CEO. So this year I'm talking to Josh Stevens, the president of Day 2. Day 2 is an Israeli-based um, startup. Um, they're about two years old now, but they're scaling in the U.S. now. Um, 
um, channeling to uh, large employers and health plans. Day two is in the business of the, of the gut microbiome to inform nutrition. And their IP, intellectual property, comes out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel, which has a ton of longitudinal data relating to, pardon me, I'm going to say a four-letter word, poop, P-O-O-P, your personal poop analyzed for the gut microbiome to figure out what you should be eating, say, if you're managing type 2 diabetes and have a heart condition. And they've got so much data from the Weizmann Institute and collecting more in the U.S. in some trials they're doing uh, at Mayo and elsewhere, uh, and the Jocelyn uh, Diabetes Center as well, um, to inform your nutrition. And interestingly enough, some people could actually eat a chocolate bar uh, who are battling uh, type 2 diabetes, depending on their personal gut microbiome. So this is really exciting. I'll talk to Josh about the science behind that and the plans to scale in the U.S. Then um, later that day, so that's Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, I'll have a chat, not in the questioner space, which is where I usually am here, but in the answerer space, like I am right now, with Indu Subaya, co-founder of Health2O, who's going to ask me about trends in healthcare consumerism. And then on my panel will be three demonstrators from three consumer-facing new tech companies uh, demonstrating, uh, I think, a women's health example, a men's health example, a mental health example, and uh, I'll opine on how I think uh, they'll do in the marketplace, especially when we think about the patient as the payer and who's going to uh, ante up for a subscription, say it's a box, or um, a one-off, or a relationship in the long term. So those are the two things. I just want to also mention today, this afternoon, I'll be judging the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Innovation Pitch Challenge uh, in two areas, home and community health, and social determinants of health, and what technology can do to scale those. Well, it sounds like a fascinating sessions. I guess one of the things I'd love to drill down onto is maybe you'd be willing to share one of those trends that you're going to be speaking to. Right. Um, this will come out after your talk, so we won't spoil yeah. anything. No, that's okay. One of the key trends, I think, is in the post-Facebook Cambridge Analytica era how people are looking at their health data. And it's very interesting that in poll after poll, survey after survey, the number one trusted data steward, so individual or responsible person um, to take care of data, is the doctor. Poll after poll, it could be a Pew study, it could be a Gallup study, a Harris study, or a smaller company study. The doctor is still seen as a trusted data steward. But if you ask any doctor, have they, have they been able to uh, pull out patient data for patients under HIPAA requests, it's still a heavy lift. So, and we see breaches in cybersecurity, a big problem in healthcare. Hims, the owner of this conference now, uh, is, is on top of this cybersecurity trend. So this issue of how much data am I willing to share as a patient, because I know it's good to share data, um, and yet uh, the converse is uh, I need to hold my data close to me. So as I talked about earlier, what, what has HIPAA done for me lately, and uh, how do we 
um, nudge people to share, but ensure that they will want to share, be safe in sharing. And I think um, one of the sessions, which will be uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, from two friends, Devin McGraw of the company Citizen, and she used to be the chief privacy officer at the Department of Health and Human Services, and Vince Caratus, a longtime guru in digital health. They have a wonderful uh, presentation and, and talk they're giving called the Healthcare Goldilocks Dilemma, which is how, what's the right size uh, of data bits and bytes to share? And I'm anxious to hear what they have to say to inform my view on this. But I think that's really where we are right now. People get the power of data. Now they know in their social life, social data is really impactful. Looking at seniors and loneliness and understanding as Mrs. Jones, how, how's Mrs. Jones mood today? And by the way, can she get to bingo? And do we need to send a car over to drive her? Um, how are we going to know about that if Mrs. Jones doesn't feel safe in sharing these intimate parts of her life? So that's one of the key conundrum I'm looking at. Well, it's a good one, and it's a big one. And <clears throat> I was having this conversation with um, a gentleman who's one of the founders in the whole world of machine learning and talking about mining of electronic health records. And you know, one of the things I said is I think it's going to be like Facebook early days. You mentioned Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. People have continued to invest in, and give over a tremendous amount of information, very personal information to Facebook because they've seen that the value has outweighed the risks, even though Facebook isn't always as good at keeping their stuff private. And I think that we're probably going to see some of the same, you know, with the, the health records and the health data, you know, what can we get out of it? We see a lot of patients putting all of their information, their genetic information online with the idea of helping to solve problems. Um, it is interesting because, you know, just talking about the doctors owning the data, it's such a siloed approach, right? So not only do they feel like it's hard to get it out, but how do they share? Who owns that? Where's the right central repository for it? And so anyway, a brave new world and lots to think about. This is where I'd like to shift a little bit and wind things down, but to talk a little bit more about you personally. And the first question I always like to ask is uh, something about you that people may not know that you're willing to share. So uh, within the last couple of years, I became an Italian citizen, therefore an EU citizen, and that's really informed a lot of my, my books. So I still hold my American passport. You haven't lost me, U.S., but I'm, I'm also now an EU citizen. So I'm spending more time there working and living uh, with my husband, who's over there too with me. And uh, that's an awful lot of fun at this stage of life. I was going to say, you, you're really taking one for the team because there are <laughs> worse places to live in the world than Absolutely. Italy. Absolutely, and a healthy place slow food, yes. lots of walking. Yes. So it's been really good for my health and well-being. Yes. No, I, I, I totally agree. We could go off on a tangent <laughs> down there. I won't. Uh, the next question I'd like to ask is beyond your amazing book, Health Consuming, uh, any books that you've read or that you'd like to recommend to our audience? Yeah, I'm a real bibliophile and in downsizing my house right now, getting rid of these books has been very painful. But one of the books I didn't get rid of from sort of middle school, high school that I reread a lot is To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I come back to it now, particularly in this socio-political stressful era, wherever you are um, on the continuum of politics, both in the U.S. and in Europe, by the way, where nativism is growing. Um, I really uh, pray literally for a civil society, a society where we love our brothers and sisters and um, can have open conversations. And To Kill a Mockingbird over and over reminds me that we can we can be there we can live that way and Atticus Finch is such a hero well it's a great choice my wife one of her favorite books and 
just to connect the dots, because we talked a little bit about Katie Couric up front, and we I had interviewed her recently. She didn't mention that as her book, but she did talk about uh, Jeff Daniels and the play and the fact that um, he's taken it in a little bit of a different direction, and she had some views on that. But we've now brought that full circle. Uh, last question, speaking of fun, and we talked a little bit about this in our prep, but I like to ask people if you're on a deserted island, uh, you could bring one album with you. Which album would you bring and why? It was tough. It was between Mozart and the Beatles, but I'm picking the Beatles' Abbey Road. So Abbey Road has an arc. It's a whole story, and particularly the second side is one long song, and I can listen to that all the time. And as you were saying with your fave, the White Album, I hear new things in Abbey Road all the time, whether it's Ringo's drum solo I'm obsessed with toward the end of the second side. I don't know why lately. I just hear Ringo, Ringo, Ringo. So anyway, it's Abbey Road. Well, it's a great choice, and anytime someone wants to pick the Beatles, I always uh, feel like that's a good one. And it is interesting because, just to digress a teeny bit, you know, there are these times where you get asked, what are your top 10 albums of all time or of a, a decade? And I do have a hard time picking Beatles albums because I have so many songs across the spectrum I like. Uh, I remember at one point in time I had the Red Album, the Blue Album, which were the greatest hits. Yes. Early days. These are back in the late 80s, early 90s. I was there, honey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I make, I force people not to pick greatest hits, so uh, I appreciate that you abided by that. But it is hard because they have, there's such a story to each album and there's so much nuance to each album that it's hard to pick just one. Well, anyway, uh, this is Aaron Strout. I am the host of the What to Know podcast show, the CMO of W2O. Uh, we're here at Health 2.0, and I've just had uh, an amazing pleasure of spending the last half hour with Jane Saracen Khan, uh, who is a health economist at Think Health, author, blogger, and all-around good person. So thank you, Jane. My pleasure, Aaron. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.